philosophy, the handmaid of theology. Peter Crave joining us on Catholic Answers Live today. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much, Jerry. You know, let's start off very basic. If you give a brief explanation of what philosophy is, you know, a lot of people may hear the word and think that it's something that uh, only has significance for, uh, what, a small percentage of uh, academics or for those who are scaling some mountain somewhere looking for the meaning of life. What is philosophy? Well, what passes for philosophy in many American universities today is pretty much, as you describe, useless speculation by airhead academics. But the word means literally the love of wisdom. And the great philosophers of pre-modern times have always been people who are addressing the questions every human being asks, like what is the meaning of life and death and is there a God and how do you know good and evil? Yeah, so in a sense, I mean, we all engage in philosophy probably every day, right? Everybody has a philosophy. If you say, I don't want to do philosophy, that's your philosophy, but it's a bad one. Would you say that in a certain sense, then, that the history of philosophy, I guess, goes back probably, what, to the beginning of time, I guess? Yes, yes. Yeah. It was really a philosophy that uh, that Eve had in the Garden of Eden. She said, um, I've got to find things out by experiment, not by faith, so I'll taste the apple. Well, here's a passage for you, Professor. You probably heard this before. Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions according to the tradition of men. And he can, goes on from there. Is St. Paul condemning philosophy, the use of reason, thinking, using our heads, things like that? No, he's not because he himself uses some concepts from Greek philosophy. Uh, he's uh, condemning vain philosophy. He's also condemning vain religion or vain words. But uh, just as there's something sacred about religion and words, so there's something sacred about philosophy. If philosophy is the love of wisdom, and if Christ is wisdom, then philosophy naturally leads to Christ. Talk a little bit about how philosophy has become, I guess, uh, the word I'm uh, systematized, for lack of a better word. I'm thinking of, of course, we go back to, as you said, Adam and Eve would have had a philosophy, maybe not systematic, written down uh, in books, of course, and things like that. You get to Socrates and Plato, and then a lot of that stuff is brought into uh, Christianity through uh, the early, uh, well, the early writers and thinkers of the church and so forth. So talk about how philosophy has become sort of a system, something that we can actually study and, and learn and take uh, one step at a time. I think Socrates is the first person in history who knew what a good logical argument was. And Plato, his disciple, wrote the world's first great philosophical classics based on Socrates' conversations. In modern times, for the last 400 years or so, philosophy has tended to imitate science and the scientific method with, I think, mixed results. It's uh, a little too systematic, a little too narrow. It can't quite do what science can do. And when it tries to, it comes up with, uh, well, something rather empty. Our guest on the program is Professor Peter Kreeft, teaches philosophy at Boston College. If you've got a question for him today, feel free to join us. Uh, maybe you're wondering why the church places uh, such importance on philosophy. For example, requiring candidates for the priesthood to have a solid grounding in it before studying theology. Um, Maybe you uh, hear about different, well, what we could call philosophical positions. Uh, maybe there are some gurus out there that you've uh, been influenced by or somebody you know has a sort of a uh, system of thought nowadays. You just want to know, you know, want to run it by Professor Crave. Say, is this, is this good? Is this bad? What is it? Give us a call. Join us, 888-318-7884. Uh, Peter, I, I mentioned the importance of philosophy to a sound theology, and maybe that's kind of the crux of what we're talking about here on the program today. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, a lot of the, for example, a lot of the heresies, theological errors that we've seen in the history of the church really boil down to a bad philosophy, don't they? 
Yes, we find in the New Testament uh, a meeting, the first meeting between Christianity and pagan philosophy. And sometimes it was a meeting that was more of a divorce and sometimes more of a marriage. What Paul said to the Corinthians was, watch out that your philosophy doesn't deceive you. But what he said to the Athenians is that your philosophy can lead you to Christ. That uh, Sermon on Mars Hill appealed to some pagan philosophers as a uh, kind of a preliminary to the gospel. So it's not philosophy as such, but uh, the character of philosophy. If it's an honest search for truth, then, well, Christ's words are, those who seek will find. And in the Middle Ages, when you have a Christian civilization, Greek philosophy was used and uh, tamed, so to speak, uh, critically appropriated for uh, Christian theology and found to be extremely useful. So the slogan, philosophy, the handmaid of theology, comes from the Middle Ages. That's not the only thing philosophy is, but that's a perfectly legitimate and high and holy calling for it to be. Sure. And, uh, of course, I'm thinking uh, even back in the early church, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, things like uh, the Arian heresy and, and, and some of those things, didn't they sort of uh, uh, come about because of uh, maybe a, a faulty understanding, oh, yes. philosophical understanding of who in Jesus fact, was? In fact, the, uh, the major heresy in the early church, Gnosticism, came directly from Neoplatonic philosophy, which uh, denied creation and the goodness of matter and the goodness of the human body. And it's this heresy, almost exactly, that is uh, resurfacing today in the New Age movement and in books like the Da Vinci Code. Sure, I was going to ask you, in fact, uh, what are some schools of thought out there that maybe our listeners uh, should watch out for today? You mentioned uh, sort of this uh, almost a resurgence of Gnosticism, if you will. Any, anything else that, that you notice is kind of catching on among uh, society or culture today? Yeah, there's this thing called, it's kind of vague, postmodernism. Uh, if modernism is taken to mean rationalism or doing philosophy by the scientific method or trying to prove everything in a scientific way, then in reaction to that, postmodernism is a kind of skepticism or subjectivism or uh, intellectual do-your-own-thing philosophy. The most famous version of it, called deconstructionism, is especially applied to literature. Uh, and it says there is no such thing as objective truth, uh, there is only power, and you can make a text mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, that, it seems to me, goes absolutely nowhere. And yet it's very popular in academic departments. Uh, maybe you, if you would, give us uh, some of the uh, more prominent names in, uh, well, as we mentioned Socrates and Plato, there were other pagan philosophers, but in the Christian age, uh, I mentioned uh, Thomas Aquinas and some others. Who are some of the more, I know Aquinas' philosophy is still uh, ever new and, and ever popular today, isn't it? Yes, he's one of the few philosophers who not only still has disciples, but whose system expands and grows the greatest philosopher in the world, to my mind, is the present Pope, and he is both a Thomist and what's called a modern personalist. He sees Thomism as a, as a growing thing and capable of assimilating a lot of good modern philosophies, such as the uh, focus on the human person. I think the two greatest Christian philosophers of all time are St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Augustine basically baptized or Christianized Plato, and Aquinas did the same thing with Aristotle. And they stand basically at the early and the late half of the Middle Ages. And Chesterton sort of uh, 
summarizes the history of philosophy nicely in three sentences. He says, paganism was the biggest thing in the world, Christianity was bigger, and everything since has been quite small. <laughs> well, what are some of the branches of philosophy uh, for folks who are wondering if, if it's just all one big field? Or I, I, I studied it myself in college, so I know uh, some of them. Of course, you've got uh, ethics, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you've got uh, epistemology, uh, other things. Talk about some of these things and what they sort of help us to understand. Well, logic gives you a method of doing philosophy. Metaphysics is the most important division of philosophy. That answers the question, what is, what is real? And everything presupposes something in metaphysics. Then philosophical anthropology asks, what is man? Cosmology asks, what's the nature of the universe or the cosmos? Epistemology asks, how does knowledge work and how can we be certain of anything? Ethics deals with good and evil, right and wrong, and Political philosophy deals with what is uh, the just state or kind of applied ethics. And then you can apply ethics to, or excuse me, to philosophy to almost anything like philosophy of education, philosophy of religion, philosophy of literature, and so on. It's a, a absolutely fascinating, vast topic. Really, you can never exhaust it. Uh, I tell you what, uh, Professor, we got full phone lines already. A lot of folks want to talk with you here about philosophy, the handmaid of theology. Let's get things started with Maureen in Farmington, Michigan. Hi, Maureen. Hi there, Jerry. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you for the call. Oh, thank you for being there. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to ask about Thomas Merton. It was my understanding that he went into the New Age philosophy, and I see his um, writings and his prayers uh, being featured in our parishes in classes and meetings and, you know, just keep coming and he keeps coming up. Peter, any thoughts on that? Well, Merton's not really a philosopher. He's a popular spiritual writer and a theologian. I don't think he's wholly bad. His earlier books are quite good. Right. Uh, I think in his later life, he got distracted and badly skewered into Zen Buddhism and Eastern religions uh, on the one hand, and into political activism uh, for the left, especially against the Vietnam War and towards pacifism on the other hand. And that really distracted him from the fundamental stuff. He wrote some very good early books. His autobiography, Seven Story Mountain, is a delightful story. Right. And a book called The Ascent to Truth is a, a very good popular account of, of mystical theology based on St. Thomas Aquinas and St. John of the Cross. It's not quite as good as Father Dubay's The Fire Within, which is the best book I know about mystical theology, but, it, but it's quite good. And there's some other um, popular devotional books like Seeds of Contemplation and The Living Bread on the Eucharist that are quite good. I would distrust the, the later Merton, though. All right. uh, so, mixed bag. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Maureen, for the phone call. That'll open up a line at 888-318-7884. Speaking of great philosophers, we've already mentioned St. Augustine, and Jim is calling from St. Augustine, Florida. Hi, Jim. Hi, how you doing? Pretty well, thanks. thanks. For taking my call. Anytime. Um, I, I work with a lot of guys who are scientists and engineers or atheists, and they use philosophy. The classic example is, you know, if, if God is omnipotent and all-loving and omniscient, you know, those things can't coexist. And, you know, I don't know how to counter those kind of arguments from the atheist perspective. Okay, I think you should rejoice that you've got people who are using reason to try to find truth. Uh, there's a couple of different kinds of atheists. Uh, you've got rational atheists there, and you can deal with them. Uh, that's the old-fashioned kind of atheist. Reason and faith can never really contradict. 
both come from God. So you should never be afraid to argue with atheists. Okay, well, thank you very much. There's at least a couple of dozen good arguments for the existence of God. There's only one strong argument against the existence of God, and that's the one you mentioned, the problem of evil. If there's a God who is omnipotent and omniscient and all-loving, why does he allow evil? And to be very honest, I don't think any of us has a completely satisfying answer to that question. We've got a partial answer. We've got uh, uh, an amazing amount of evidence uh, for the existence of God. But uh, ultimately, it's going to come down to a leap of faith. Do you, do you trust the massive evidence for God or the little bit of evidence against him? St. Augustine summarized it this way. He said, if there is no God, then why is there so much good? And if there is a God, why is there so much evil? I think we can explain why God permits evil more easily than the atheist can admit, uh, can explain why there is good. Does that help you, Jim? Yes, thank you very much. You are welcome. And, uh, of course, Peter, I, you mentioned the ability to prove the existence of God. Uh, if, correct me again here if I'm wrong, but that is something that can be done from philosophy, but not uh, from theology alone, apart from revelation. Is that correct? We can know by reason alone, apart from revelation, uh, many things about God, not nearly as much as we can by revelation. But the fact We can know, for instance, that there is a first cause and that there is a designing mind behind the universe. I don't think philosophy can prove that God loves you or that God wants to redeem you. No, but I'm, I'm just talking about the mere existence of God, and that, that's, of course, something that uh, the, the pagan philosophers uh, arrived at as well. Uh, yeah. Jim, again, thanks for the phone call. going to go over to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hello, Danny. Hi, Professor Christian. How are you doing today? All right, thanks. Um, I just wanted to say, first off, I'm... A big fan of your books, and I have read almost all of them. Oh, thanks I've very much. I've actually devoured them, and they've actually represented a big part of my intellectual training. Wow, a judge. I'm actually <laughs> I'm a, uh, on them. Uh, a student <laughs> in music theory, actually, also working on kind of like a philosophy of music. You were mentioning philosophies of other topics, and I'm uh, you know in my studies have encountered a lot of postmodernist philosophy, and also in talking with my colleagues and stuff at school. And, uh, you know, coming from my background as a Catholic and a lot of my formation previously having read the earworks, then I sometimes find that as I talk with um, my colleagues, somehow it just doesn't fit. Like, it doesn't make sense. That, um, and I wonder, first off, like, how, you know, you experience this in your own, um, you know, teaching at a university, but also... If you could speak to my fundamental question, with, which is, what is, like, the limit of philosophy? Like, how far really can you go? Sometimes it seems like you can't go anywhere with it. So that would be my question. That's a good question. Everything has limits except God. So even though philosophy is a great thing, it has limits. It doesn't appeal to faith or divine revelation. So it knows about as much of God as an ant knows of a mountain. It knows that it exists, and it knows that it's pretty big. Uh, but uh, God provides you a kind of an airplane to climb up the mountain, and that's faith. But it takes faith to get into the airplane. So compared with what God has revealed, uh, the amount of knowledge that we can have of him by philosophy is very small. But it's enough to get you started. I like the analogy of a man who wants to swim. He needs a car to go to the beach. And the car is like philosophy, but to leap into the water, that's an act of faith. 
do you find that philosophy has any possible way of helping people make that act of faith? Yes, it does. That, that isn't part of faith itself? <laughs> certainly. The first Christian philosopher, probably, was a guy named Justin Martyr. He was canonized uh, as a saint. He was a martyr. And he looked for truth by philosophy and tried every system, found Plato's was the best. And then one day he met an old man on a beach who was not a philosopher, but he was a Christian. And the old man asked him some questions that he couldn't answer. And he asked the old man some questions that he could answer. And he said, this is amazing. This man is wiser than I am, and he's never been to, to school. Where did he learn it? And the old man said, well, my teacher is God himself. So Justin became a Christian. Then he went back to the school of philosophy in Athens and argued with the philosophers and found out that he could beat them at their own game. That, I think, is a typical experience. You, you seek the truth by unaided reason. You get partial success, but it's not satisfying. You accept a higher truth by faith, and then you find that it satisfies your reason better than anything else. Well, thank you. That's encouraging. Uh, of course, the discouragement of dealing with people that uh, don't come from the Christian background, it can be frustrating to try to talk in their terms and then not really get very far. So, yeah. Well, I think if you, put, if you put the greatest Christian philosophers like Thomas Aquinas in dialogue with the greatest non-Christian philosophers of all time, Aquinas would win every argument hands down. And uh, Danny, I think uh, one, what that does uh, provide you with is the opportunity then to, to pray for folks, bring prayer into it. Sounds like you got some uh, good uh, thinking going on in your own mind there, and keep up the good work, engage those folks, and uh, again, just uh, offer your prayers for them when uh, it seems like uh, that's the only thing that's going to help. Appreciate your call to Catholic Answers Live today. Got busy phones here, so we will move along. Triple eight three one eight seven eight eight four. As we have an open phone line there, we're going to talk next with Jay from Midwest City, Oklahoma. Hi. Jay. Hi, Jerry. Um, happy feast day to the both of you, St. Joseph's you. Day. Yes, indeed. And I uh, just want to uh, say that's an honor to speak with uh, Dr. Craved. Um, I haven't read all of his books. <laughs> I've listened to one of your tapes on the uh, one in the culture war, uh-huh. and I was much impressed with uh, the fact that you mentioned about uh, Christ's blood. And as we uh, are in Lent, that's a very specific thing. And of course, with the movie coming out, that's very good, too. But I guess... Um, a few of the previous callers have kind of asked the same question that I was uh, thinking of asking. Uh, I uh, don't know if this gentleman is a rational atheist, but uh, I'm trying to, you know, peck away at him, you know, little bit by little bit. But uh, would there be any kind of a small booklet that I could give him that would help him to maybe that he's willing to read that would maybe help him to to uh, know the existence of God or feel well, the you existence? Could try of God? my handbook of Christian apologetics. What's that? My handbook of Christian apologetics. Okay. It has a chapter on the existence of God. There are 24 distinct arguments in it and other controversial doctrines, and it's organized in a very clear and simple and rational way. Okay. That's a book that we carry, by the way, here at Catholic Answers, if you're interested, Jay. Okay, thank you very much. Um, is and it true, let me see, uh, Jerry, one other that thing. Um, Carl is uh, going to be in... Um, Clear Creek Monastery in a few days. Is that correct? It might be. You know what? I'm. I. I, I, it's, I remember hearing something about that, but uh, you might have to check with the folks there at the monastery because uh, they would know for sure. But I know uh, I, I had heard something about that, but I can't say for sure, Jay. I'm sorry about that. But that's okay. Uh, I just spent the past weekend there and had a wonderful time. So. Ah, well, I know that uh, Peter said you were starting to say something else for Jay. Maybe. Yeah, I want to recommend one other thing. Uh, it, it's a book that I think has done more for converting unbelievers to Christianity than any other book in modern times. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Very simple and very clear. And it begins with a, a very good statement of the moral argument for the existence of God. 
Mere Christianity? Mm-hmm. By C.S. Lewis. Okay. And the handbook of uh, Christian Apologetics? Uh-huh. Correct. Okay. Well, thanks for mentioning in the Culture War video about uh, the martyrs and the blood of Christ, because between uh, you and Dr. Scott Hahn, we don't hear that very much, and you're about the only two that I've heard that from in the last few years, and so I appreciate your good work. Well, thank you. So, Thanks, Jay. God bless the both of you. You too, and uh, appreciate the uh, the call and the feast day wishes. It is it's my middle name, so I'm enjoying the feast day here on uh, this feast of St. Joseph. Uh, we're going to go to, we've got a call from Los Angeles. Charles, you're up next with Peter Crafe. Welcome. Thank you, and uh, happy feast day, St. Joseph's Day, and, and the Swallows are coming back to Capistrano. Oh, fantastic. Uh-huh. And uh, my question is, uh, we're studying the works of Edith Stein, St. Teresa Benedicta. And I was wondering, we, we think she might be the next doctor of the church. I was wondering what uh, Professor uh, might think about that. Well, whether she becomes a doctor of the church or not is something a mere philosopher can't decide. That's up to the Holy Spirit. She's a brilliant mind, certainly. Uh, her kind of philosophy is called phenomenology, uh, a very honest way of doing philosophy by looking at ordinary experience very carefully. Uh, I have enormous respect for her. I have no future crystal ball, so I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, I definitely recommend reading her. No, I've got all of her books, and uh, she's she's not something that you read over your lunch hour. So. No, it's not light reading. <laughs> all right. Uh, does that uh, help you out there, Charles? Sure. All right. Thank you uh, for the uh, phone call. Yeah, I guess, uh, Peter, there have been uh, not just men philosophers, but a lot of great women thinkers as well. That's true, especially in modern times. Yeah. Uh, we got uh, several more calls here. We have an open phone line there, though, 888-318-7884. Peter Crafe joining us here as we talk about philosophy, the handmaid of theology today on Catholic Answers Live, wrapping up the week with this program. And Scott from Fresno is up next. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jerry. Great to catch up to you. What an honor to catch up to Dr. Crafe. I uh, had the question, for those of us who took introduction to philosophy in college and then kind of hid out from the subject ever since, is is there a good way to read our way back into becoming good philosophers? Or do we have well, to go I'd back to the dialogue of Plato? That's the first great uh, classic in say, the history of philosophy. Say that again, Peter. I, I don't know. The dialogues of Plato. Yeah. Okay. There you, you've got a master, not a secondary source. And almost all the great questions are raised there. And you get to meet Socrates, who is, I think, the, the world's greatest philosopher. How about that Philosophy 101 by Socrates? Yeah, I'd recommend that. Some guy named Crave wrote that as an introduction. <laughs> and I've got a couple of Socrates Meets uh, People books that uh, I'm, I'm starting to work through. I have about a dozen that looks like I've got at least two dozen more books to go through. Uh-huh. These are books of yours, uh, Peter? Yes. Ah, yes. Okay. Well, Scott, it sounds like you've got a, a philosophical bent there. Is there uh, something in particular you wanted to, uh, to to learn or maybe uh, put it to use for? Well, I wanted to put it to use towards apologetics. I've got a lot of good evangelical friends that uh, they uh, they tend to avoid philosophy, so I was hoping to learn it well enough that I could kind of gently introduce it to them a little bit deeper. Well, they can't avoid the reality. They can only avoid the word. So uh, if you give them philosophical arguments, just don't tell them that you're doing philosophy. Okay. Thank you very much. There you go. All right, Scott. Thanks for the call. Uh, Tim in St. Louis, you would be our next caller. Thank you for joining us. Hello, gentlemen. Howdy. Um, I just wanted to thank Dr. Cray for his work, especially his dialectic books, uh, Between Heaven and Hell, especially was able uh, to be instrumental in, in helping to convert a rational agnostic friend of mine. 
Um, Great. I've studied Thomism in college, and I'm sort of a a Thomist from way back, but with the writings of the Pope, I've become interested in phenomenology, and uh, I know that Edith Stein is a phenomenologist, but do you you have any specific works of hers or anyone else that would be good reading to start on that? Well, phenomenology, not easy to read. It's a good thing to do, but it's not light and bright and sprightly. So I couldn't recommend any one good introduction to phenomenology. Any other? Any, go ahead, Tim. Would any other of Edith Stein's writings be the any particular work of hers is noteworthy that uh, is particularly important? I'm not enough of an expert on her to say. I've just sampled her and been very impressed by her mind. Okay. All right, Thank Tim. You. Hey, thanks a lot for the phone call here to Catholic Answers Live. Phone number, again, toll-free as we have that line open there, 888-31-TRUTH. Of course, uh, good philosophy should be about seeking and finding the truth. you got a question for Peter Crave. Do join us here on the program today. going to go up to Minnesota. WMIN is our station there in the Twin Cities. Hi, Anita. Hi. This is a great show. Thank you. I have a question for the philosopher, seeing that my father is a philosopher. Oh, great. He's a very bright man, and we were having a discussion, and I just didn't want to frustrate him, but we were talking about the movie The Passion, and he made a comment. He said, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas told us that because Christ has perfect intelligence and his will is aligned with God, he is incapable of mental anguish. Can, however, take on all the physical feelings of a human being and can suffer physically and take on his imagination, a human's imagination and emotions, but cannot, is incapable of mental anguish. And my question was, what about the Aegean Garden? What about weeping at his friend Lazarus' death? So I, I guess I'd like to hear your take on that. Well, I clearly disagree with that conclusion. The Gospels certainly present Jesus as sharing every anguish, including mental anguish, that we have. I'm not sure whether Thomas Aquinas actually said that. If he did, I think he probably meant by mental anguish something very special and careful and not what we ordinarily mean by it. Okay. Would this, okay. uh, Professor, would this be an example of, who is it, Athanasius or somebody said what is not assumed is not redeemed? I mean, uh, philosophically, we have to understand, don't we, that Jesus took on everything of our human nature, which I think would include this sort of mental anguish in, in the sense of, you know, facing what he had to face. He certainly would have uh, anguished was, over he that. He was like us in all things but sin, and that includes the consequences of sin, death, mortality, and certainly more mental anguish. So I'm very surprised that uh, someone would say he did not suffer mental anguish. Okay. He didn't make mistakes. I can understand that he, he didn't suffer ignorance, but uh, anguish? Well, I think he what he was anguish. trying to say, the best what he was trying to say to me was he could never deny or have unbelief of the existence or the beautification of God. That's true. That's true. But that's not mental anguish. That's a lack of faith. That's a fault. He okay. had no faults. Okay. Well, ha- thank you. Have your dad call. Uh, we got to still 20 minutes left in the program. <laughs> 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 All right. Anita. God bless. Thanks for the call. Still busy, busy phones here. Rick in Cincinnati, WNOP listener. You would be next. Thanks for joining us. Yes, hello. Thank you very much, Jerry. Professor, how are you guys? Fine, thanks. Fine. Uh, Professor, and I'll, um, I'll hang up after I uh, ask you this so you can just address it. I was wondering if you could talk about... Um, 
what Pascal's wager is? Oh, great question, yes. It's one of the most effective arguments against atheism that I've ever heard. I find Pascal, in general, probably the best apologist for modern students. He's as Catholic as Aquinas, but much more simple and practical, much more typically modern in the sense that he addresses the heart as well as the head and the practical as well as the theoretical. The wager is a great argument to give a skeptic, someone who thinks you can't know for sure whether there's a God or not. Pascal says, well, even if you can't know, you can bet on it. What could you gain and what could you lose by believing in God? Well, you can't really lose anything because if you can't prove whether God exists or not, nobody can prove that you're wrong if you believe or that if you don't. But uh, if God exists and if Christianity is true and he wants to give you himself and heaven, but uh, he requires you to freely accept him by an act of faith, then to refuse that acceptance is like refusing the offer of a million dollars for free. And you lose everything. And you lose everything. Now, Pascal knows that that's not religious faith. That's just the beginning. Once you make that wager, that leap, for purely selfish and practical reasons, God's going to make you go farther. But uh, that's like a little infant taking his first step. Uh, it's the first step on the, on the way to becoming an athlete. And surprisingly, after Pascal gives you that wager, which is basically a, a gambler's calculation, he goes into some deep psychology, and he says, people will probably say, I just can't make that leap of faith, even though it's rational. And then he says, ah, yes, now be honest enough to realize that it's not your reason that's holding you back then. It's your selfish passions, mm. so you've got to deal with them. And finally, at the end of the wager, Pascal says, uh, you know where I got this argument from? Not from my head, but I got it on my knees. Mm. I would highly recommend reading Pascal's Pensées. It's a little masterpiece. Yeah, so he kind of woos people in and, and then lets God take over after that. Yeah, love is uh, delightfully unscrupulous. <laughs> yes, indeed. Rick, thanks a lot for the uh, phone call. Jeffrey in Ypsilanti, you would be next with Peter Crave. Thanks for calling. Call. Um, uh, Dr. Crave, I've read many of your books. I found them very useful, and uh, thank you for writing them. Um, you, my good, question you. for you today is I'm been reading C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, and I find his argument that um, he states reason and free will um, really have to derive from a supernatural origin very co as a very compelling argument for the existence of the transcendent. And I was wondering if you could, uh, like I said, I'm struggling with this argument, trying to understand it better. I wonder if you could la maybe elaborate on his idea a little bit. And, and is this an idea that C this original is C.S. Lewis, or is this something that has been in the Christian and Catholic tradition prior to... to That's a very book. good question. I think Miracles is C.S. Lewis's most philosophical book, and Lewis is certainly the best Christian apologist of modern times. That argument is not wholly new. Augustine has something like it, but Lewis develops it in a, in a modern way over against the modern so-called logical atheist. The best way to look at it is by a model of a, of a computer, by the analogy of a computer. If a computer has been programmed by someone with no intelligence or a defective intelligence or a malicious will, you don't trust it. So only if you can trust the, the mind that programmed it can you trust the computer. Well, the brain is something like a computer. So if you say there is no God and we evolved simply by blind chance, then why should you trust the human mind when it, uh, when it thinks about anything? 
Yeah, that's, 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 that works very, very well as a negative argument against the skeptic. How much it proves about God and how much you can know about the origin of the human mind from God is kind of limited. But I think it's a powerful argument. Yeah, I do too. I find that, as I said, it's a very compelling book. That, that's a great book. It's a, it's a classic. Yeah, that thank you very much. The Problem for of Pain are two brilliant books by Lewis. All right, Jeffrey, thank you for the phone call. We'll go over to Chicago and welcome Victor to the program next. Hi, Victor. Hi. Uh, Professor Crape, I know everyone is telling you this, but I'll add that I think your works are brilliant. Um, well, thank you. My but... question is, I, I did a, um, a talk in front of a group of people about the uh, issue of abortion. Yeah. And I hope you don't mind, but I borrowed your philosophical argument against abortion that there are only four possibilities or four possible ways to characterize abortion three of which involve criminal activity could you yeah. go over that i think it's just very helpful and it hit home with my audience okay that's a very simple and practical argument i think either abortion is the killing of an innocent human being or it isn't and either we know that fact or we don't so the four possibilities are, one, abortion is murder, and we know it, in which case you're responsible for murder. Or, number two, abortion is murder, but you don't know it. But in that case, it's criminal negligence. It's like shooting a gun into a bush that's just moved, and you don't know whether it's a deer or your fellow hunter. Third possibility, abortion is not murder. The fetus is not a human being, but you don't know that. You shoot the gun, and it turns out to be a deer rather than your hunter. Well, that's still terribly irresponsible. So the only case in which abortion would be innocent is not only that the fetus is not a human being, but you know that. But no one has ever proved that the fetus is not a human being. Those who defend abortion say nobody knows whether the fetus is a human being or not. Even the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade says no one knows when human life begins. And their strange conclusion is, therefore, let's shoot fascinating i uh, i missed that one when the uh, nightly news reported those uh, facts uh, professor surprise surprise <laughs> yeah victor appreciate the uh, call to catholic answers live we uh, have uh, time for a few more here so we'll get to as many of you as we can triple eight three one eight seven eight eight four hi charlene calling from madison heights welcome Hello. Yes, I, I, I wanted to ask a question, and then um, I was wondering if you'd permit me to pontificate on abortion a little bit. Okay, my well, question if, if is... There, if there's time, we'll let you get the question in and, and see how much time we have there. Okay. My question is, since in the real world, if we were to have a disagreement over a piece of metal, I say it's aluminum, you say it's steel, we could take it into the laboratory and prove who is correct. But since philosophy deals with abstract ideas and concepts, it cannot be tested in the real world. How then can one ever know whether they are right or wrong except by being told by God? Okay, that's a fair question. I disagree with your assumption that abstract questions can't be settled in the real world. Ask any mathematician whether he can be certain of his equations or not, and he will say yes. And his equations work for the real world, but they're abstract. You can't touch a number. Okay, well, let's say moral questions, because those yep. are not something that can be really proven. It's really a matter of opinion. One person will say, well, that's your I opinion. I disagree. I very strongly opinion. disagree with that. Okay. I don't think, I think you disagree with that, too. I don't believe that you think it's merely a matter of opinion, like whether the Yankees are better than the Red Sox or vice versa, or whether ice cream is better than yogurt. I don't think you think it's really a matter of opinion whether it's okay to rape a woman or to enslave a black or to commit genocide against a race. 
I don't think anybody thinks those are matters of opinion. I think they. Well, they, there's they lots of people that, that would true. argue with that, just like the people who su- support abortion. They'll, they'll say, "Well, maybe you don't believe that, but I don't believe as a human being." And and um, but for matters of right or wrong, you know, you can't uh, really uh, prove it. You can keep arguing these things, but I don't. I don't think you can ever prove it, and that's why God has to tell us what is right and wrong. Well, sometimes people are dishonest and just don't want to know the truth. And sometimes they're ignorant. And on the matter of abortion, there are some people who are scientifically ignorant. They think that maybe the fetus is just a bunch of cells. They've never taken any courses in biology. They don't know any genetics. Or they may even be morally ignorant of the principle that it's always wrong to deliberately kill an innocent human life. Mm -hmm. But those are still objective facts. They may not be able to be proved in, in test tubes and laboratories, but they're just as objective as the fact that you're going to die and the sky is blue. Right and wrong are not matters of opinion. Okay, and I, I wanted to say in the, on the uh, issue of abortion, everyone keeps ta- talking about, well, when does life begin? But actually, life is a continuum. You can't uh, make a baby or pass on any life from dead or inanimate objects. And yes, so the life, the life of the, the individual. The question is that is it a potential life? The sperm and the ovum are potential life. It's when they meet that it creates a human being. Before the issue of abortion arose, there was not a single biology textbook in the world that doubted that the life of a new individual began at conception. That's simply a scientific fact. Now that's politically incorrect, so the books don't teach that anymore. They fudge it. But you're right, life is a continuum, but the individual life is not a continuum. There's an absolute beginning to each individual life. All right, Charlene, thank you for the phone call. hope that's helpful for you. We've got to get to a couple more folks here, if we can, including Dennis in Milwaukee. Hi, Dennis. Hey. My Re- question is um, regarding open theism. I don't know. Um, my, my friend and I have been discussing it a lot, and he's been drawn towards the works of Gregory Boyd. And uh, I'd like to, to address uh, or ask a question of, of Dr. Kreeft about how, how best I can I can talk with him about that and, and best defend classical theism against that uh, new um, emerging view of God's existence. Well, you first have to understand the attractiveness of open theism, which says that God doesn't know everything and doesn't have power over the future. He's sort of growing and evolving in his knowledge, and he responds dynamically to situations just as we do. The attractiveness of that is it seems to get him off the hook on the problem of evil. But the problem with it is, first of all, it's been condemned as a heresy very early. I'm not sure just which document, but uh, the notion that God changes is simply incompatible with the idea that God is perfect because if you change, you get either better or worse. And if you get better, then you weren't perfect in the first place. And if you get worse, then you're not perfect when you end up. So God is unchangeable. He's active, but he's unchangeable. And I don't see how open theism can get around that. So it's both an argument from church authority and an argument from reason. Yeah, and when I talk with him about that, he quotes that, you know, Boyd uses early Christian... Uh, authorities plus the Bible to say that open theism is correct. Um, the, the fact that God changes his mind when he he regrets creating people and that, you know. Is he, is he something like a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness who believes no, that uh, the church got everything wrong for 2,000 years? No, he's an evangelical Protestant. Um, oh, well, then he's got to have some credence in apostolic tradition and the mainline Christian tradition for 2,000 years. How does he know there's a trinity? 
that well, he still agrees with like in certain traditions. He's just saying that because of the problem of evil, like you said, and because of, of certain things about how we relate to God and how God relates to us, he thinks the open theistic view gives us a better understanding of that than, say, a classical theistic view who says that God doesn't change and how can you relate to a non-changing being and such. I think, I think there's a deeper question here, the question of how you solve theological problems. Let's take a classic problem that sounds different than that, but you got the right method in place for it. Uh, predestination and free will, or divine grace and human free will. It looks like a contradiction. I love a book by Augustine called On Grace and Free Will, where he says, all right, it looks like a contradiction. What do we do? We look at each one carefully. We try to understand it. We don't just give a quick, clever solution to it. And we don't ignore our data. There is divine grace, and it's sovereign. And on the other hand, there is human free will. And for us, the future is really open, and we are responsible. And by looking at the two halves of the paradox very deeply, he succeeds in seeing them as two sides of the same coin and reconciles them in the end. But he refuses to water down his data. Now, one piece of data that we've got on this problem of evil is that uh, God is perfectly good and also perfectly omniscient and omnipotent. And the other piece of data is that God cares about us, interacts with us, and acts like a, a loving father, not just a, a vague impersonal force. And the open theist is very much aware of that second piece of data, but fudges the first piece or waters down the first piece of data because he thinks it contradicts his second piece of data. But that's not good science. Science doesn't ignore any of the data. Like the physicist says, light is a wave and light is a particle, and even if we can't reconcile those two things, we can't deny either one. So I don't think you can deny or water down God's perfection or unchangeability just for the sake of some other important idea. Dennis, I want to thank you for the phone call. That'll wrap things up for calls on the program today. Uh, Peter, so much more I uh, would have loved to have gotten into with you here. Uh, oh, man, I don't it's dare. A lifetime's work. I, I, it is. I don't dare ask. I was going to ask you about just the practicality of studying philosophy. I mean, uh, uh, career options and things like that. I mean, a lot of people are thinking uh, right now, if you're hearing the program, yes, yeah, something maybe I should study, maybe just for uh, to have a better life and to be able to think more clearly. Uh, but, uh, you know, time just isn't going to allow us to get into just uh, some of the practical uh, aspects of what you can do with philosophy and things like that. Maybe we'll have you back on the program. And, and it's what philosophy can do with you that counts what you can do yeah, with it. Well, there you go. Brilliantly put and a great way to end the program. I want to thank you for your time. You're, uh, I'll just echo what a lot of the callers said. Uh, doing great work. Brilliant to writings and appreciate your expertise and what you brought to the program today and we'll look forward to having you on again. Thank you very much, Jerry. All right, Peter Crafe to joining us here on Catholic Answers Live.